Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. I'm broadcasting from Nerdville, Gotham, in New York City. Today, my special guest is none other than founding member of Anthrax, my friend and yours, Mr. Scott Ian. Thank you very much for doing this. It's a real honor and a pleasure to do this. Oh, man. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's not often we, we, it's like, you did my show, now I get to do your show, and that rarely ever happens. <laughs> I know. I, I, I was saying to myself, I'm like, i go, I got to reach out to Scott and see if he'd want to be on my show. You know, we started this thing because a lot – I'm very curious about musicians because I always have this – I have this theory, and, and a lot of times I'm right, that no matter what genre you, you play music in or professionally or even, you know, if you're, you know, even if you're just sitting at home, everybody starts the same way. It starts in your bedroom. It starts with a, 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 you know, a conduit of sorts. You know, like when you were a kid, in, you know, you know, Bayside Queens. What was your conduit to music? I mean, how did you get started? You know, when when what music moved you to the point where you said, "I got to do this." Yeah, I I started playing guitar when I was. I, I'm gonna say I was eight years old. Uh, so that would have been 71. So 72, because I'm born on New Year's Eve. So so 72 uh, is when I actually asked my parents to buy me a guitar and if I could get guitar lessons. And, uh, and actually the thing, the actual spark, the conduit for me was somehow seeing a clip of The Who on television as a kid around that time. And it wasn't even so much the music. It was seeing Pete Townsend do a windmill right. and play chords. And I thought that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I was like, I I, I got to do that. That's yeah. what I want to do. I already love music and I collected seven inches and and uh, I love music. And now this was the, that was the, all right, instead of just listening to music, you need to play music now because look how cool that is. And right. that that is that was the first actual thing. So it was so it was, it was really the who um, and and rock and roll was the original yes. you know that you you know because I, I spoke to a few other you know um, you know guitar players of all genres and a lot of them started on brass me included like my uh, first instrument was the trumpet and it was just you know again it was what grandpa had laying around in my case and you know the parents and but you know it's rare to find somebody's like it's like rock and roll I, it it moves me I want to be like Pete Townsend and. One of the things I, you know, I've always, you know, found interesting about you as a guitar player is the fact that you dedicated, you know, your your music and and your guitar playing to rhythm guitar. Like, you know, you're a great soloist, but but you know, we, but when you play, you pride yourself on on rhythmic patterns and in a in a, a precision that not a lot of people can can achieve you're like what what made that conscious decision as a as a guitarist to go like i'm gonna sit here and just lay it down as heavy as i can i think initially um it just was more practical for me when i really when i started playing guitar so now i'm talking about like i'm 13 or so for 13 14 years old i had discovered acdc in like 77 ish so i think it was seventh grade so that right. makes sense and uh discovered acdc and i would sit in my tiny little bedroom in my mom's apartment and i had a turntable and i had headphones and i would 
learn the ACDC songs. And so when it would come to the solo, I would try and start learning the solo. I would slow the record down to 16 and try and learn it like that because that's how some of my friends would do it. And I'd be spending so much time trying to learn the solo. So they'd be like, all right, screw this. And I'd go on to the next song. I'd learn all the chords. And then I realized, you know, I could learn this whole album in the time it's going to take me to learn one of Angus's solos. Right. And that's kind of what put me on the path to like someone else. Someone else could be Angus. Yeah. I'll, I'll be Malcolm. Someone else will be Angus. I, I'll just I want to be this guy. I want to be the chord guy. So and I, I can't say it comes out of laziness because I am definitely not a lazy person. But that's just I think it just came out of the idea of I wanted to learn as many songs as I could. I wanted to learn the chords. I wanted to learn the things that you know that strung the song together the chords to me right. that's the song that's the riff you know uh and that's that's where it started for me of course in the context of anthrax once we we became a band uh i already was a rhythm guitar player but then had to learn how to play rhythm guitar for the music we were writing because right. i wasn't listening to anything that sounded like us really with the fast like all that kind of picking and the palm muting and all that that there wasn't so much of that out there the way we were doing it. You know, it's 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 funny you mentioned Pete Townsend and and Angus Young and you know obviously his brother Malcolm because I always found them as guitar players. Like you know, I would be listening to, you know, in my early life I would be listening to Stevie Ray Vaughan and I'd be listening to Hendrix and and John McLaughlin and Tommy Boland and wanted to be the I wanted to be the I wanted to be the soloist guy. Right. When I listened to Pete. Angus and Malcolm. I'm just as interested in the chords. When I listen to Paul Kossoff from Free, I'm just as interested in the chords. Actually, more interested in the chord voicings and the impact on the music than I was with the soloing. And it's and it's right. interesting, you know, that that Pete was your introduction to in the windmill and everything. Tell me about like the spectacle nature of rock and roll, specifically when you saw Kiss for the first time. Like what impact on you? Like when you put sight and sound together, and you go, okay, now now I'm starting to get a vision for where I want to go. Yeah, funny you mentioned Paul Kossoff. I listened to Fire and Water that album three times through yesterday. Oh, three times over and over. It's such a great record. But anyway, um, yeah, Kiss for me was that was like you know um, uh, what's the what do you call it? That was my moment. That that was it for me when 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 I first heard rock and roll all night on the radio as a kid, I heard it on the radio in the car and didn't know who it was because the DJ never said beforehand and then didn't back announce it. So I was just stuck with this song that I was trying to keep the hook in my head. And but I didn't know who did it and I didn't have a record store I could just walk to. And but this song stayed with me. And then about a week later. I saw Kiss on television, and here they are with their, you know, hit single "Rock and Roll All Night." I'm like, that's who does that, and they look like that. And because I was a Marvel Comics nerd, and I loved hard rock, and that was like everything wrapped up in one amazing package for a 12 year old at the time. Right. Yeah. So that was it. I mean, they were truly the first music I got into that my parents wanted nothing to do with. Like, you know, they could deal with, I like the who, and I loved Elton John. Um, and my parents listened to a lot of good music. They, they loved 
Paul Simon and 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 they had the Woodstock soundtrack in the house all the time. And my dad was like into the Doobie Brothers and the Eagles. And so like my parents listened to good music. Um, but Kiss, that was all me. And once that door was opened, I, I, especially I saw them in Madison Square Garden, uh, December 14th, 1977. And I walked out of that show and I, I said the words out loud to my friends. I said, that's what I'm going to do with right. my life. I'm not going to spit fire or spit blood like right. Gene, but because he already does that. But I'm going to be in a band and I'm I'm going to go do that. That's and I never, ever, ever left that path leaving Madison Square Garden that night. I've never strayed from that path. It's it's amazing. I, I, I had a similar moment when I went to see Greg Allman and Dickie Betts co-build. Wow. They weren't the Allman Brothers. It was two solo bands at a 300 seat club in Rome, New York. Wow. And I was I was six years old and I watched Dan Toller rip on a Sunburst Les Paul and I said, I want in on whatever this is. I want yeah. and then I saw Eric Clapton, you know, on television and listened to his record. I go, I want in. So as a teenager in nineteen seventy seven, how how hard was it? to start a band of like-minded individuals in Bayside, you know, in New York. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, yeah. well, hey, listen, I just saw Kiss. I'm inspired. You know, hey, you play drums, you play bass. I'll play the exactly. guitar. We got to find a singer who owns a PA. You yep. know, that's, how does that happen? You know, I mean, like, I'm like, you go, okay, you go, I go from this to now I am looking at a science book going, anthrax seems like a very evil word. And I got this vision for, I got this. I got this vision for this band. How, how does that happen? Well, we didn't get wasn't Anthrax yet, but I mean, I think it started maybe like a lot for a lot of other people. You know, friends at school. I you know I I was in a very small clique of of kids in junior high. We had long hair. We listened to hard rock. Nobody even said heavy metal yet at this point in time. Seventy seven, seventy eight. No one was right. even using that term. There was rock. There was hard rock. There was punk. You know, new wave, whatever. But uh, um, I had a lot of like-minded friends. Well, not a lot. There was about seven or eight of us that would hang together at lunch. And my friend David had a little boombox that he would bring in. And we'd all bring cassettes and listen to music at lunch. That's how we'd find new shit. And But some of those friends was like, all right, well, you play guitar. And then, well, I got this other friend at home. He's a drummer. He's got a drum kit in his house. And so that's kind of how it happened. Just kids in the neighborhood. Right. And just started jamming me and my buddy neil and this guy dave weiss on drums and this kid paul khan who played bass and we could like rehearse in his garage and he had some pa speakers and my buddy dave had a drum kit and you know we would just do cover songs and try and write our own originals and we made a band called 4x which we actually named after the condom which was f-o-u-r-e-x <laughs> But we were just four dash X. <laughs> right, right. We played and we played Bayside High School talent show and didn't even win. Like we, we lost at the talent show, but we had a hell of a lot of fun in our leather jackets and stuff. Like literally, like I think we played like a priest and a maiden song. This was like 1980 by now, probably. But uh, 4X kind of hung around, went through lots of different members, just always, you know, nobody's was committed like I was committed to being in a band so for me it was always about I, I gotta find a new person you know this guy's not working out he's not into it he won't chip in for rehearsal time 
because by that point we started we heard we found a studio near us that you could go it was like you know 10 bucks an hour and they had Marshall stacks you know right. in that you could play through and but I'd be I'd end up having to pay for it because no oh, I don't, I'm broke I don't you, know, you can't come up with 250 you know right. what I mean like right. come on so it, it was crap like that until finally I met, met this kid Danny Lilker who I went to high school with uh, I think we met probably in 79 or something and uh we were both into the same like even more extreme we're getting into like british stuff you know we were into the score well scorpions are german but scorpions and ufo and motorhead um and then of course it when 80 rolled around maiden and we were into priest right already so we were getting into heavier stuff and danny and i we walked to school together every day we jammed every day and cut to long story short, July eighteenth, nineteen eighty one. We five of us got in a room at this rehearsal studio, and uh, Danny and I, the drummer guy from Four X, and and uh, our another friend from high school singing, and we we had so much fun jamming together. We walked out of that rehearsal, and I said, "Well, you guys want to be in a band?" Like because Danny and I had been talking forever about starting a band called anthrax which was actually he learned about anthrax at school and on one of our many walks home he was like i learned about this thing called anthrax today i'm like well what's that and he said it's this like spore or something that can kill you it's like highly contagious and i said it's it sounds like uh, a really good band name like it sounds very metal and uh, I said, so when your band breaks up, because he was in another band called White Heat at the time, mm-hmm. I said, when your band breaks up, we'll start Anthrax. Uh, and he's right. like, oh, my band's not breaking up. His band broke up. July 18th, we officially called the band Anthrax on July 18th, 1981. Of course, we went through about 27 people between July 18th, 81, right. and then having the lineup that recorded the first album over right. those two years of trying to get that uh, lineup together that was really committed to being in a band um, you know, we went through quite a few people, but, you know, once we settled on that first lineup, you know, it's only we got rid of the singer not long after that. But other than that, it hasn't been that many changes in 40 years. Right. <laughs> so tell me, what was it like in like New York City? Like you, you started a band, got a rehearsal, you got you got you got guys that are committed to doing it, you know, because back I always think about. When I first I went I went to New York City for the first time 1988 and it was really at the tail end of what you could call I call it the taxi driver years. Yes. Meaning it was Times Square is was rough and it was not a place for a kid it was not a place for an adult especially you know you know and New York City was 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 really uh, heading in the wrong direction you know what was right. it like like when you when you you, you started band like like what kind of clubs were you working to just get noticed because it, were you throwing your own parties? Were you paying to play, or how how'd that work? Yeah, there was there was nothing. There was nowhere for us to go. Um, when we we felt we were good enough to actually start, we had a mixture of cover songs and originals. You know, let's say by the fall of '81, we had a couple of originals, and we were covering obscure Judas Priest and stuff off Maiden's first album and Motorhead stuff, which. Nobody would even know. We never even we just played the songs. We didn't even say this is Iron Maiden. We just played it. Right. But uh, we would try. We 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 had like a a demo that we made, like a crappy four track demo, and uh, 
we would go around the clubs, the clubs that we would see ads for in the, uh, you know, entertainment uh, newspapers, the weeklies and stuff. And you'd go to clubs and um, you couldn't get booked unless you were specifically like a Van Halen cover band or right. like that's what was really big at that point in the early 80s. People either want to dance, you know, disco uh, or uh, you, if you were rock, it had to be covers and songs that people knew. You know, just like greatest hits sets or just specifically Van Halen was the big one back then. Like, oh, go home and learn a Van Halen set. Maybe we'll give you a Tuesday night. Like that's that's basically what we faced. And we refused to do that. We were not going to go do that. So we actually our first ever gig, a friend of ours said, hey, uh, the church that my family goes to has this basement and they'll rent it out. So we actually played at St. John's Episcopal in Flushing, Queens sometime <laughs> that fall. We rented the basement and we had like two PA cabinets and we sold tickets to our friends. We just, right. you know, and, uh, and we played for like 70 minutes in the basement of a church to about 25 people. And, you know, and it was great. It, it felt amazing. And, right. and, and then you'd luck out and you'd find out, oh, there's this bar. Like on Mondays, they do live music like over in Jamaica so uh, you go there and, and just show up and they give you like you could play almost like open mic, set right. up your shit, play for 30 minutes, get out. So you we would just do whatever we could. Um, but, you know, there was really nothing going on. It was it was really hard. It wasn't even a case of getting noticed. That wasn't going to happen by playing live at that time. Nobody. The city clubs forget it like CBGBs or Gildersleeves at the time. Um, you know, there was no way let alone a, 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 an unknown band and a metal band because metal wasn't, nobody was had anything to do with that at that point. Right. So right. it was hard. It wasn't until um, this guy, John Zazula, who started, he owned a record store in Jersey called Rock and Roll Heaven. And uh, he started bringing bands, these underground metal bands like Raven from Newcastle, England and Venom from Newcastle and Anvil from Canada. And uh, he started bringing these bands in to play shows. And th this is the stuff we were listening to. So that, like in 82, he put on this headbangers ball show in Staten Island on Halloween. And it was Raven Anvil and this New York band riot. And we couldn't believe these bands were playing in New York city. And like, we got to meet this guy. Right. So right. we, we got down there early that day to the St. George theater in Staten Island. And uh, we got down there early and, he was handing out flyers to the line of kids waiting to get in about other shows he had coming up. And then I handed him the anthrax demo and that's, I was like, Hey, we'd love to get on your shows. And then we just hounded this dude. Right. We'd go to his store every weekend down in old bridge, New Jersey. And just, here's a new demo. Here's a new demo. Here's a new demo. And then he, he started putting us on like club gigs with shows that he was doing. Right. So that that's when the door like kind of finally started to crack open for us. When did you start noticing your ability to stand out in a group of bands? Like there's there's you know there's there's always that moment when you figure out like the 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 act the the songs the 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 the, st the stage show everything is is starting to connect with a with with a wider audience. When when was that? When you know like when you were start playing these shows in New Jersey at these headbangers ball? Would would it be like okay? Out of, would you sell more merch or how did you know it was starting to scale in a way that you were going to like, okay, we could actually make a run at this. Well, I, I feel like we, 
we were really tight. Like we prided ourselves on just being the tightest at the time, fastest. Uh, that was important back then. Uh, like just we rehearsed seven days a week. We had our own room at, at this point at a place called the music building in Jamaica, Queens. And, uh, you could rent it monthly. It was basically a squat that someone decided, oh, I could rent these crappy empty rooms out to bands. The bands, and right. like, and at the time, was the worst neighborhood, not only in Queens, but one of the worst neighborhoods in all of New York City. And uh, But we had this like giant 2,000-square-foot room in this old burnt-out building that was only costing us like $300 a month. Right. So we were able to store our gear there and rehearse, and we were there seven days a week. And we were tight, man. We were super tight, and and we were super aggressive on stage, and and really, really physical on stage. And and I felt like all of that is really what that even more so. I think early on, then what we were playing is what started to win people over because we would get on stage and it was like a fucking hurricane, right? Like just headbanging and hair flying, and we were just we were just copying the British bands that we loved who already had records out and, you know, and these guys were all headbanging and super aggressive and, but nobody on a, on a, 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 a um, mainstream level had, had knew, knew any of this stuff yet, right. but we did cause we were buying the British rock mags. And so we kind of felt like we know a secret that nobody else knows. And so we were, we were, we were just aping what they were doing and doing it as hard as we could. And, uh, and, People started to care. And most importantly, Johnny Z, John Zazula started to care because by the time 83 rolled around, he had basically discovered Metallica because he got their first demo. And uh, he decided, I'm going to put a record out. We're going to make an album. He goes, I don't know how to do that, but I'm going to. So he took it around and shopped it. And every major label just basically sat there like this. Right. And he goes, like, no one will put it out. Well, I'll do it myself and we're like well what about us us too us too he's like you guys are six months behind you know right. but and and truly that's what happened he that signed was the metallica. Birth of mega was it mega force records yeah. yeah he had metallica he had us and he had raven and he said we're doing this i'm putting out metallica i'm putting out raven and then i'm gonna put out anthrax he goes so just you know just keep doing what you're doing and as soon as you know metallica is done then we'll get you guys in the studio and that's like so most importantly he thought we were good enough right. you know that and he would come to all the little shows we would play and he would like tell us you know what, what change this or try and fix this or you know like i don't like that drummer and he was right this was before charlie was in the band we had a different drummer and he just he couldn't play double kick the way we needed it and all that and he's like that drummer's not good you need a faster double kick player and and all this and we listened and we got charlie in the band who was the fastest double kick drummer and uh besides being a great drummer so that was the most importantly it was johnny noticed and noticed enough that he thought i i could put a record out from these guys and people around the world are going to connect with this no one no one was ever thinking local in the scene we were a part of because there was nothing going on locally. Right. Like when Johnny brought Metallica to New York, Metallica and Anthrax, we played all these little clubs, shitholes in New Jersey and, and, and stuff. And, you know, they weren't full. Nobody, you know, I mean, people didn't get it at all yet. Right. But every, everyone was thinking of it as a worldwide thing. We weren't thinking 
we're going to work the local scene for the next five years and build this. And, you know, we're like, screw that. We want to be in Europe next year. We want to be in Japan next year. Like, that's how we were thinking. Yeah, yeah. That leads me to two questions. One, you know, because your group, Anthrax, is known as one of the big four. That would be Metallica, Anthrax, that would be Slayer, and Megadeth. What was the similarities of the bands, but when did the tempo start to rise? Because that, to me, like you mentioned, we needed we need a drummer that could play double kick faster, faster, faster. So because you guys are, if, 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 if Iron Maiden's here, you're another 60 clicks above. You know, right. you're, you're, you know, just in, not, I'm generalizing, but what I'm saying is like, you guys played it faster, tighter, heavier. And when did that sound kind of click? Was it, was it John who said, Hey, listen, this, this could actually work. Or was it just one of those things where it goes, this is where you naturally felt it. Or was it just one of the things that's try to stand out going, look, yeah. we can, we're, we're the tightest, badass, bad, you know, badasses in the land. Check this out. Right. It, it's, it's, it's what we were listening to. At that point, you know, in through 82, uh, um, Danny Looker, the, who's the bass player, you know, who we started the band with, um, uh, the two of us were always looking for the next most extreme, the hardest, the heaviest, the fastest. Right. We had already gotten into like like hardcore bands, like British hardcore stuff, like GBH and Discharge and the Exploited which which because we had already loved motorhead and then we were listening to this hardcore punk stuff that it was motorhead ish but even faster and right. more brutal and more aggressive and in your face and uh and then there was a new york hardcore scene that we were getting into bands like agnostic front um who were just playing brutally super fast and uh and and then even the the early early beginnings of what was to become like death metal and black metal with like the band venom uh, uh, there was a band possessed from the West coast that came a little bit later, but, uh, we were always looking for whatever the hardest, the heaviest. We always, that's, that's what was like lighting a fire under us. So of course that's also what was influencing what we were writing. And, uh, and it's what we love to do. It just felt good to be playing that fast, to be charging along like that. And, um, uh, it just, that it felt like this is who we are. Like we came from Maiden and Motorhead and, and and all that, but now like we've kind of taken those influences and taken all those other influences like that I just talked about, and it all kind of got put mushed together through our you know, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking through, the the way we saw it basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah you put it that's, through that's your how we expressed yeah. it. So, yeah. well, yeah, all that came together and. Uh, and that's that's where that speed really like came from. It's because it's we loved it. Suicidal Tendencies, another early, early on. Like their first record was eighty two or eighty three. The Misfits, like a lot of that hardcore punk stuff, was was so fast. And it wasn't metal sounding guitars by any means, um, but it was it was the aggression of it, right. which we felt. If we we have that aggression with the type of riffing that we're doing with the down down picking or the alternate picking and the palm muting and all that i mean it sounds like a freaking machine gun like it just right. it just it all worked 
So, you know, I always have a theory about like when there's a, you know, a, a formative scene like, you know, in, in London, 19, mid 1960s, you had the Stones, you had the Beatles, you had John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, you had Free, you had Cream, Jimi Hendrix was active. And I would say like, you know, the fact that there was a complementary yet competitive scene brought out the best in bands. So like I could imagine when you guys would hear records from Venom or Suicidal Tendencies or Metallica or whoever going, okay, we got to up our game because they just wrote this and just came out with that, you know, and then they're hearing stuff that you're doing and they go, well, we just wrote, you know, look what Anthrax is doing. We got to up our game. And it, and it just elevates the scene. Was it Metallica? Which band, uh, really elevated to the point where the entire scene was now, now, you know, all of a sudden the places are full. The places are, you know, arenas are full now. You know, it's like sure. it, it scaled pretty quickly. It scaled within a couple of years. Yeah, it was definitely Metallica that led the way because um, uh, their first record came out uh, in '83, and they get they headed out on tour. Um, our first record came out January of 84, uh, Slayer might've been 83 too. Their first album, Megadeth was, I think late 84, or early 85, but Metallica was definitely first by, you know, already by 84, when we were out on our first run across the States opening for the band Raven, and that's what Metallica did the year before 83 Metallica went out, opened for Raven all summer of 83, pretty much crushed them. You know, right. it just showed here comes the new guys, right? Right. And uh, and then you know what they immediately started headlining clubs and are selling out clubs. Um, by the time, and then you know we spent a lot of time in Europe back then too, going into '85 because that's where it was really starting to blow up. This sound that we had like all kind of created that they were calling in the press speed metal and then also thrash metal. Yeah. Um, the magazines and all that, because there was no there was no media here in America that was covering that. But over in Europe, every country had a great metal mag that right. all, you had writers that fell in love with what we were doing. So they were like promoting, promoting, promoting. I mean, by we were already headlining. I mean, we put out our first record January of 84 and we headlined Hammersmith Odeon in like the fall of 86. Wow. So like yeah. that's and it. Back then, it seemed like forever, though that right. two and a half years from the time our first record came out to our second album and all the touring we were doing and traveling around the world. But you look at it on paper and it's like in two and a half years, we went from zero to like thirty five hundred people in London. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, one of the things I want I wanted to ask you, I read this, you know, you know, I always say like touring Europe. I mean, I've been touring Europe for a while, but but I, it's always been the European Union. When I when I when I tour, but the thing is, I I was like, you know, in, in some of that stuff, it's still it's still it's still a little bit weird. You start going to the Eastern Bloc and and you know, and it's and it's you know, there's some borders and stuff like that. But when you guys were starting in like '85 '86 touring over there, this was this was still in the Cold War. Still, there was places you couldn't go, and you did this like I read about this. I, I'm not sure if this is true, but I read about it that you guys did this gig in the Ukraine. Shortly after Chernobyl, it wasn't it wasn't Ukraine, um, but in '86 on our first like full European tour, um, it was like springtime, April May ish of '86. We were on tour in Europe, which and it wasn't that long after 
Chernobyl. I don't remember the date of Chernobyl. But when we were there, we were literally told um, by the promoter, like, literally, don't walk in the grass. Like, if you right. see a park, stay <laughs> off because the radiation could get there. Telling people, stay off the grass. Don't don't eat fresh fruit or vegetables. Like, it was it was really like, and we're like, all right, we were all a little bit like it's our first time in Europe and things were weird and we were sharing a bus with two other bands and right. it was a rough tour. It wasn't like we were going over there the first time and we were living the life. It was right. it was hard. Like we didn't we didn't have hotels hardly. We weren't showering. It was a lot of strange food um, for the, our first time there. And then on top of all that, we're worried that we're all getting sick from Chernobyl and we're like all going to go home and never be able to have children or something like right. what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it's like when you're young and fearless, you know, speaking yeah. of that, you know, you and I, uh, you brought this up when you interviewed me on your show on uh, Sirius XM that we have um, a connection to a studio in upstate New York that was pretty pivotal, pivotal in 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 the the sound of of those those anthrax records and it just happens to be the place that i recorded my first solo album with tom dowd and that's pyramid studios um tell me what it was like to like okay now you're outside now you're outside of queens you're in upstate new york which for people who are watching around the world there is the downstate and the city and then there's upstate new york it's as different right. as 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 midtown manhattan and wisconsin Yes. You know, and Ithaca, New York, is a, just a kind of quiet, sleepy college town. And you guys roll in. You meet Alex Perry Alice. When did you know that that studio and that vibe was like, yeah, this this is where we we like this kind of work. You know, you're not because you were not in the hustle and the bustle of a major city. You were young guys want to go have fun or have it. Probably wasn't even a bar open at that time. You know what I mean? It was like it, it's it's a sleepy one mule town, but yet you guys are making like seminal you know thrash metal records in this right. yeah you know we had every intention of recording in the city because obviously in there are plenty of recording studios in manhattan in right. 1983 right. but uh um the 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 long story short of it is metallica somehow johnny z had gotten a deal at this place called barrett alley in rochester new york for Metallica to go record Kill Em All. Uh, no idea how any of that worked out, but I'm sure it was way cheaper for them to go to Rochester, I'm sure, than it was to have them in a studio in Manhattan. That's 100%, 100%. I'm sure, why they ended up in Rochester. How they ever found that place, I have no idea, but it was a guy named Paul Curcio who produced that first Metallica record and this guy named Chris Bubash who engineered it. So Johnny was basically like, well, We've got it set up now. We're going to send all the bands to Rochester and record there. So when it's our time, it's like September of 83, and we, we load up a U-Haul, and uh, we drive with all the gear and, like, seven of us. So there's three of us up front and four guys in the back with the gear. And, you know, the city to Rochester is in a U-Haul. That's That was like an eight-hour drive and uh, with guys in the back with the equipment. Right. Um, and we get there late at night. And we walk in, there was someone there, they opened the door for us. We get there late at night to load in, like late, like one in the morning. And uh, we noticed there's no there's no desk, there's no console in the control room. And we're supposed to start a record the next day. Like we right. had a tight, like 10 day window to make an album. And right. uh, 
and we're like, and I was like, so is the board coming in the morning and they're going to, is it only take like an hour or two to cook it up? Like, and they're like, no, there's no board coming. The board's not going to be here for like a month. Like, well, what, what do we, we're supposed to start a record tomorrow. Right. And then we had to like go one in the morning down to like to find a payphone to like call back to Jersey to Johnny's. I'm like, there's no mixing board here. Like, right. what are we supposed to do? So it's big panic and blah, 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 blah. And then, so the guy that was producing our record, this guy called Kennedy, who was the drummer in a, a an upstate New York band called the rods at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he, we called him, uh, he lived in Cortland and, uh, he's like, all right, I know a couple of places. Uh, I'll get on it first thing in the morning and then I'll get, I'll get back to you guys. Just stay by the phone in the studio. Um, cause they wouldn't let us use the phone in the studio when we got in to call New Jersey. Cause it was a long distance call. Oh like, my God. That's yeah. the war. It was 1983. Right. right. So, uh, so Carl called the studio the next morning and goes, all right, I got two places for you to look at one, a place in Elmira and a place in Ithaca. So me and our other our lead guitar player Danny, we got in the the empty U-Haul. We figured, all right, leave the gear here. We'll right. take the truck. We drove to Elmira. We checked out this place. It was crap. It was like it was like our rehearsal room, right? With like a an eight track desk, and we were like, no, no, no this is yeah, bullshit. Yeah. And then we sh- get to Ithaca, and we walk into Pyramid, and it's a real studio, right? And we meet Alex, and we're like, this place is better than the place in Rochester. Like way better, so we're like we we want to make our record here, and and uh, he goes all right. So we got him on the phone with Johnny, and then I got on the phone with Johnny, and he's like, by the way, it's like way more expensive than Rochester. I don't know. If, I'm like, well, we're doing it here. We're not leaving. We're going to get the gear, and we're coming back here. So figure it out, and that's what we did. We drove back to Rochester, picked up the gear, the rest of the dudes drove back to Ithaca, and by the time we had gotten back there, Johnny had worked out a similar deal with Alex and his dad, John, something to the effect of, Hey, I'm starting a label. I'm signing bands and I'm going to send them all your way. I'm right. going to keep your studio busy for years. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And call the holiday in a couple blocks away, you know, yes, you walk, exactly. you walk, to, you walk to work. And there so, was a really, there was a really good bar named Captain Joe's right down by the lake. And we would eat like fried clams and drink beer every night. <laughs> there's some, there's some, there's some definite, uh, indigenous New- upstate New York dishes that only appear in that you know in that region that ninety mile corridor between Rochester, Ithaca, Utica, where I was born, which right. is a lot of times confused. I want to talk to you about you know like everybody knows you as the guitar player from Anthrax, but you've had a a a very long wonderful career not only as a musician but also as a broadcaster. You know you're a TV show host, you're an author. You know, you're, you've been in several super groups, including with my friend Jason Bonham, which I actually appeared on that show, for, oddly enough, for such a different time. Um, and, you know, what about broadcasting do you love? You know, because it sometimes gets tedious, you know, especially television. You got to do take after take after take, you know, and then the words start getting all right. You, know, you kind of get dyslexic because you're tired. And, and um, you know, like, what, what about it? You know, because you have a great... You have a great ability and a great way of communicating, you know, both on your radio show and on TV. It's like, when did you discover that talent? I I don't know. I just think I was such a tenacious prick early on in context of the band, 
trying to get people to listen to us and to believe in us and to like literally I thought I can talk people into wanting to have something to do with our band to right. give us a chance like if I if I just throw enough bullshit at them eventually it's going to work and I think I just developed as they say the gift of gab you know in those early years of just having to deal with people from a point of no power and no strength at all and just yeah. learning how to talk your way into something and uh so then and then of course once things started happening the band started happening I just felt like I had something to say like normally the rhythm guitar player wouldn't be a guy talking on the microphone in between songs but right. I just naturally felt like I had something to say I had I wanted to have that rapport with right. the audience I I felt really comfortable with public speaking which I know kind of goes against most people on the planet I yeah. actually I I love it I I kind of live for that thrill and uh and I think I just got good at it I, I my brain moves quickly and I you know I speak real good when I need to and uh um especially even when I had my VH1 show you know they have teleprompters obviously and I got real good at that quickly like that's easy but most of the time I just be riffing off the top of my head because I can re really just talk shit about anything as long as if it's something I know about certainly right right and if I don't I'm pretty good at bullshitting so <laughs> one way or the other <laughs> one way or the other you're gonna get your point across yeah and I, I think that just for me also just comes from being a kid from Queens like mm -hmm. it's just kind of who I am it's 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 been I, like my mom. You were such a quiet kid. You were quiet. I observed, and I'm like, I was in my head. I was constantly thinking. My brain was going a mile a minute. Like basically, how the hell do I get out of here? How do I take my guitar and get up? You know, I I was always thinking. I said it may seem like I was quiet, but the brain was like it was constantly moving. You know, it's you know, it's weird. I, I I have the same I have the same thing. Like one on one, I'm a very shy, introverted person. Almost the people would like some people are like. Well, at first, I thought you were very rude. I'm like, no, I'm just really shy around people I don't know. Until I get a microphone and a large group of people, and there's this somewhat there's this calm thing that comes over you that yes. you would you would think would be the opposite. But you're going, I you know, I've given sermons in front of you know. Thousand people or two thousand people, whatever, and you, you know, and I am able to tell jokes, and, and I have the bullet points. You know, when did you realize, like on stage, you know, because it's like you know, it's normally the lead singer's job to like, you know, sure. you know, hello, you know, hello, Cleveland, you right. know. But you're the you're really the face and the personality of Anthrax. You've always been. I mean, it's like it's the you're the identifying character in in the entire picture, and you know, was it was that it was. Was that just something that you know you just picked up naturally, or was it like, no, no, I, this is this is how I want this band represented to the to the folks? No, I, everyone, it kind of, I mean, you know how it is in a band, like people's the roles just developed organically, and right. and I had a big mouth, and it doesn't mean it's not like I was talking between every song because certainly Joey, he, that was also his right. job too. I wouldn't want to be because like I know like cheap trick most of the time Rick Nielsen is talking between songs Robin talks sometimes but Rick is usually the guy in between right. and and I didn't want it to be like that but I just wanted to have a couple of spots because you know I was the guy writing all the lyrics or I should say I am the guy writing all the lyrics right so I feel like all right 
it's all my words out there being thrown out there to people's ears. So um, I, I, I do have something to say in this scenario. It's not like I'm just trying to, I want to be on the mic too. Like, yeah, I you're just, right. Just naturally felt like I, I had a, I had a place there. I had a reason to be at the microphone and it just kind of naturally developed that way. And then in interviews too, in the press, I, I started doing the promo tours from our first album on first time. It was just me. And then it was me and Joey for years. And it was, John Bush and I for years, and then now jo- Joey and I again. Um, it's you know just I I I don't know. I, I, it's not so much that I like to sit and talk all day because I I can't say that's what it is, but I I do I do have something to say. I feel like and yeah. I, and I, and I I know how to tell a story. Yeah, you know here's a question for you. I've been asking recently, um, and it's. And it's no slight against myself um, or anyone online. Do you miss the pre-internet days? Meaning, today, here's your interview sheet. It says Kerrang. It says Mojo. It says Rolling Stone. It says, and, and these, are, these are accredited rock and roll journalists who have dedicated their life to, to rock and roll journal, journalism in the sense that they are informed, they are, they are, they are opinionated, but they're also open-minded versus the wild west of the internet where anybody that says, you know, anthrax fan 59 can chime in and shit on your record or try to, you know, conjure up, or you end up on, you know, internet broadcasting shows with bozos like me, you know, (laughs) the, 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 do you miss the days? Cause I do. I miss the days sitting down with classic rock magazine or whoever, guitar player, guitar world, knowing what I say to this guy and what he's going to ask me is going to make a difference as opposed to just this just infinite chatter now. Um, I do in that aspect for sure. Um, you know, we had such a good relationship with the press in, in the eighties, certainly in the UK. I mean, the the Kerrang guys were so instrumental in in us breaking in that market because they were they were so into what we were doing, and we were fans of these guys. I mean, I I started reading Kerrang, you know, early on, years before Anthrax even had a record out. I was fans of guys like Malcolm Dome and Howard Johnson and right. and Jeff Barton and all all these writers. Like, and then we got to start to meet them, and they were fans of what we were doing, and um. It, it, there was so much mutual respect because these guys were actually yeah. they were writers they were actual actual journalists and uh, i i absolutely do miss that and and when we do have a record coming out uh, the last few years i've actually told our publicist here and the, the publicist in germany uh for the label over there i i tend to now i'll get i'll get the list of everything they want us to do and then i I tend to kind of pick and choose the ones yeah. that I'm going to, because I'm like, I'm not doing every single blog, you know, there'll be like a hundred, uh, like, you know, and it'll say it has this many unique views and blah, blah. I'm like, all you need to do is have one real interview, put it up somewhere. And all this, all these hundred blogs are all going to pick it up anyway. So like, yeah. I, I don't need to sit here for 45 hours answering the same questions Right. Or, you know, for some guy that's like his his brother and his mom are going to see it like it's just and that's no offense to anybody. 
but th- there's better things I could be doing with my time creatively than that. I, I get the same thing where it's like publicists tend to, you know, to, in order to impress record companies tend to go, well, look how much press I've gotten for the band or whatever artist. And there's a lot of times I'll hang up the phone or, you know, and it and listen, you try to be as nice. But again, you it's like I'm answering you. It was like playing with B.B. King for the same people, you know, like the same time, same place, same everything. And it's it's always a, it's a fair question. But I'm like, on this, these these answers have been online for sure, many times before. And I always get off the phone and I always say say to myself, I go, you know, if I just took a taxi around town with a megaphone, I could probably reach more people if I just, you know, like tonight only, Joe Bonamassa and his fabulous blues band. And it, 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 gets, it gets to you. Here's, here's a, a question from, from a, a, a celebrity and 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 um, that that he's also not a journalist and he's a character. His name is Mike Hickey and he used to play guitar in Venom, and and he's also my guitar tech. Right. And I asked him. He has two questions for you. He said, "How much of your your rhythm work is down picking versus alternate?" You touched on it a little bit earlier. He was he was um, he was intrigued to know that. Um. It all depends on the riff. It's uh, I used to be of the mind that if I can downpick it, then it needs to be downpicked. And even if it means getting faster. But at some point, I also realized, well, sometimes I, I would hear stuff back and go, it sounds too stiff to me. Like it's past the point of the where the downpicking sounds powerful. Now it just sounds weird and kind of stiff. And not as strong. So which case, I started to learn how to have my upstroke be just as powerful as my downstroke. Right. right. To the point where I could fool myself and or my, a producer where I'll be like, check it out. I'm going to downpick this part. And it'd be like, cool. And I'll play it. And then I'll listen back. And I'm like, I wasn't downpicking. I was going up and down. You couldn't even tell. You couldn't even tell. Right. But it, for me, you know, obviously, if something's, you know, going... If something's like, you know, super fast, obviously you can't go just down picking. That's going to be up and down the alternate. But, uh, but you know, anything, anything, anything in that mid tempo chugger chugging range yeah. is always going to sound better. You just, just that's there's a staccato to it. The attack of the pick. It right. just it's the way it needs to be. It's a strike. The pick yeah. strikes the strings as opposed to rakes the strings back. Right. And 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 it's a subtle difference, especially in a loud situation. But you listen back to it, and it just for some reason it uh, it hits the soul more. I mean, you feel it more. His second question is more of a geek question. Do you still have uh, the pre-production Charvels you used back in the day? Oh, is he? T- is he talking about the surfcasters, maybe? Yeah, like early, like 80s Charvels that used to use. Oh, those. Um, I have one. I have one Sandemus, you know, like right. strat shape from back in the day. My star body, I had like an 82 star body with the lightning bolt. Right. And, um, and I sold that to our drummer, Charlie, back in the early days in like 83 because... I, think I I like needed money because I was ordering a Randy Rhodes from Sam Ash, and right. uh, 
I needed some more cash. So, and I had never, at, it's weird. I already thought like, oh, that, that guitar, that's cheesy. That star body with the lightning bolt. That looks, that looks cheesy. I can't play that anymore. And, uh, so I think I sold it to him at the time for like two fifty or something like that. So I could get this Randy Rhodes and, uh, he still has that guitar and, all the riffs and stuff that he writes for Anthrax, he writes like on that guitar. So I think he was meant to own that that Charvel. And it, I play it whenever I'm I'm at his house, and it it feels amazing. Yeah, that's great, Scott. Thank you for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. And um, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. And and I could just say, you know, on the air and off the air, you're you're such a cool stand-up dude and, and such a fan of music. You know, a lot of times people like us we get typecast in the sense that you know they think all i listen to is eric clapton and blues rock i'm like i love everything i love heavy right. metal i like I, I love heavy music i love sabbath i love i love delta blues you're the same way i mean like you know just yeah. rapping with you it's like it's like music is music and it's all it's you know it's like food you don't eat the same thing every day but yeah, uh, yeah exactly i i don't look at i don't I don't care about genres. It, I either like it or I don't. It doesn't matter to me what kind of music it is. Right. Music. Best new metal band to come out in the last 10 years. And I'll leave it at that. In the last 10 years. So that would be since 2010? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, uh, oh, I'm going to. Oh, that's hard. Um I'll say this band called Code Orange from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. They uh, they came out on tour with us a couple of years ago and uh, really really impressed. They're they're just doing something new. They've got their own vision, their own lens uh, that they see it through, and uh, and they're like the best live act I've seen in years. I mean, and they're you know they're young, they're kids, and I. I think I might have even been like old grandpa metal one day and said like, oh, man, I, I remember when I used to do that. I said, just take care of your knees, my man. <laughs> take care of your knees. That's right. What do you think, what do you think about the, the introduction of, of track into a live performance? You know, you've come, you've come from, you know, we, we both come from the school. You play it, you play it or you don't. Yeah. You know? And then there's a lot of bands now that don't come from that school and don't know any different. They, they were signed or whatever, got popular off a of record. And then it's like, oh, we, we have four guitar tracks per side. But, you know, he, there's a guy here we can hire for the road that, that plays them. It like uses the Pro Tools and you play along and then there's the vocal. And what do you think, what, what do you think about that introduction in, in the live format? Does it take away from the, the spontaneity? Does it take away from the authenticity? Yeah, I, I you know, I don't want to sound like an old man, but I mean, come on. It's like if, you know, look, I get it. If if it's some kind of giant pop act and giant production or something like that, you know, or if it's Pink Floyd doing the wall and there's recorded stuff that vo- voiceovers, whatever, things yeah. like that. But like if, if you know, if you I, I, just, I hate going to a show. And I just instantly know it's like, oh my, like all the backing vocals are a track, you know, and like, or like it just, it makes, you know, like in the, let's say the context, I think Rob Zombie is someone who does it really well because he's got, there's a lot of stuff going on. You break Rob Zombie down to, it's real simple. It's guitar, bass, drums, and his vocals. And they could do that fine and play their songs. But if you listen to the records, there's lots of little spoken parts and things from movies and samples and things like yeah. that that 
And so you're running those tracks. It's great because it, it adds a, an attitude and an atmosphere that isn't there if it's just the guitar, bass, drums, and vocals. And, and I think that's great and that's fine. But if you're running, you know, if you're faking it, no, I, I, I don't buy it. And I, I think it should actually be, a, I don't know how it could be a law, but I, I think it should be printed on a ticket that for right. bands that are doing that and acts, shows that are doing that, it should say 70% of the show you're paying $250 for is pre-recorded. It right. should say it on the ticket. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there should be a disclaimer on the ticket knowing and the you know, it because there's just like there's been times I've been at festivals and, and you know, with in the odd occasion where I'm mixed in with heavier rock acts or even even you know, just all kinds of music and I go, Man, the Beatles didn't sing that in tune. You know what I mean? And I'm like <laughs> and I'm like, it's a live gig. There's no the you know, I'm yeah. like you can't be they can't be that precise, you know, and you then you then you see the guy with the they got the rig in the back and it's okay. But, um, you know, it's just, it's a different era. You know, it's a different, I, I just think I'd rather hear mistakes, looseness, warts and all in, oh, a, in yeah. a band that just going for it and go, ah, we fucked up tonight. Who cares? You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. it's the Nate. That's why we do it live. Scott, thanks yep. for being on the program. Um, thank, thank you. you for having me on your show. And, uh, seriously, it's, it's, it's a real honor to speak with you. And, and, uh, like I said, I'm a big fan, and and your 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 Simpsons doll collection is you know with Stanley and and company. It's 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 a uh, it's as a Simpsons guy, I'm I'm very impressed. So awesome, thank you, and thanks for having me on, man. Thanks, guys. This has been another episode of Live from Nerdville. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you to my honored guest Scott Ian from the band Anthrax.